Hey everyone, welcome back to Millennial History. Today we have the penultimate episode from East Germany. Let's jump in. I mean, I just find it really interesting. <laughs> Here, this is the talk about everything place because there's just so much to talk about. Prove ourselves worthy of the majority. Millennial History. Welcome to Millennial History. In this podcast, we talk to millennials who lived big events in recent world history from up close. This time, we turn to Germany. After the Second World War, Germany was split in a capitalist western part and a socialist eastern part. Inga, Winnie, Henning and Burkhardt were born in the east, in the former GDR. In this episode, the first of two, they will tell us about their life in that country that no longer exists, the organization of the state and the massive protests in the autumn of 1989. Here's what you can expect. There's still this old narrative, we should be scared of communism, we should be scared of socialism. There just weren't so many desires, because there weren't so many occasions where you have been told what you could desire in the world. If you lived in the wrong system, of course it was wrong, so you better forget that history, right? Because we are the winners and we know what's the good system. You see it was not working. The fall of the wall was not the happy event for me personally in my childhood, as it was for so many other people. Because it was so clear that my parents are not uh, einverstanden, they are not contented with it. Not in that way. These four millennials grew up in a period of rapid and complete change. In 1990, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, East and West were quickly merged into the Germany that we know today. But was it also a unification? How would you call it? That's a very interesting topic. What what do you think, Inga? In German, what's the term they use? Wiedervereinigung. My grandfather said always to my mom in the 50s, way before the wall was built, Karin, put the radio on, maybe we have the reunification already. The end of German history is the reunification. This was really the main goal since post-World War II. The end of history came, Germany was reunited, The Cold War was over. We all bought Coca-Cola. End of the story. 16 million people were adapting from one day to another to a very new system. We had to copy the system of the West all the time with everything. There was like no way that there could be another form. Only the green light. That was the only thing that was taken over. That's the icon that was kept. And a good night story for the kids also. Is there an East German identity? Can we ask that question of an East German identity? I felt always guilty to ask that question. Why did you feel guilty is so specific? Why guilty to ask? Because it feels questioning the whole process of reunification and the last 30 years of happy ending history. My name is Andrea Wutz. I am a musical journalist. I'm joined in the studio by composer and sound designer Luke Dean. And the music you will hear has been offered by musicians from East Germany. Let's go.
what still rings a bell inside of me is like these abandoned places, you know, like houses who are almost falling apart and were empty. You see the little holes from the bullets still uh, in the in the walls. Everything was a little bit like decayed and. Why was that? Yeah, because there was no money. <laughs> the heating was old school. My brother would stand up at five o'clock in the morning would go to the basement with two baskets of coal and, and would, uh, would make the heating in the mornings. And that was in the 80s, not in the 30s or the 20s. We didn't have a telephone. On our uh, door of, of the flat, we had like a tiny block of paper and a pencil. And sometimes when we came home, then there was like a note written, hey, we were here. We wanted to visit you, but unfortunately you weren't there, but maybe next week. I saw this documentary, I was really shocked how it was in the 90s to discover the telephonic system of East Germany. Because the Russians took a lot out when, you know, <laughs> like as reparations. It was running on, you know, the infrastructure of the 20s and 30s. Growing up in the 90s, 80s, I felt I got access to the lifestyle of the 19th century and the decor that was the 19th century. Cities that were black and full of coal and industry, having electricity from the 30s and all that. That's why I feel sometimes very old. The atmosphere of the Cold War was very present anyway. Some friends of mine who were visiting GDR when they were kids always described it. It was so grey, they couldn't believe it. It was so grey. No billboards, all the houses in an old state. For most of them it was like a very strange, very grey and very a, a country with much tristesse in it. We were playing ball and we were riding the bicycle. I don't know what we did all the time. We did all that, I think, exactly the same way as Western children. It was just that our houses were gray and we had no billboards with advertisements on the wall. Everything else was the same, I mean, I had warm clothes and uh, I had enough to eat. I had uh, loving parents, I had friends. I had my choir. There was nothing to miss as a child. There was nothing to be depressed about. I, I can't remember that I had only one day the feeling that I'm missing something that I want something which I cannot have, materially. There weren't so many things to buy, so you didn't work for the reason that you wanted to 
go to the shopping mall on Saturday to fulfill your desires. So when you were working, you were working for maybe rent and a beer in the afternoon. And that's it. There just weren't so many desires because there weren't so many occasions where you have been told what you could desire in the world. That must have a massive influence on the sense of self that people have. Yeah, it seems to me like this as well, actually. Yeah, especially on the on the women. So much of the advertisement always goes into the direction of women to feel shitty about themselves. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's true, the queue are a very uh, yeah, Eastern thing. One occasion was something special was available. For example, bananas or a certain kind of bread or simply, yeah, to get things for everyday life. It was always, yeah, hard to, to get your stuff, you know. And sometimes there weren't even uh, apples available for half a year. What did it create in these days was, I wouldn't call it black market, but a network of complicity. Somebody heard that in that shop the next three days would apples be available and you heard it from him and uh, you go there and you tell your friend and already <laughs> there's the queue, of course. The whole Dürsamheit idea, from our perspective, mm. perspective, I just can laugh about like new businesses and, and startups, what they have now for great ideas of reuse material. Wow, you don't throw away wood? The most classic example, tails, kachels, you know, like tiles. Tiles. Tiles were like gold in the GDR of economy. It's, this is really <laughs> symbolic for a lot of stuff. If you have about tiles, everybody will probably smile and go, oh yeah, I, I bought my car for 10,000 marks and five boxes of tiles. <laughs> There's a lot of let's say, collective memory. I went in Moscow in this apartment and I knew exactly how the apartment looks like and what to do, because the architecture was very similar then to the East German Plattenbau. And then I entered in the living room and it was still a bit like 70s, 80s kind of decor. And it smelled exactly like in the room of my grandmother. You know? In Moscow. In Moscow, of all places. More or less consciously, we, we are looking for belonging and identity all the time. And uh, I think in a very subconscious way, our surroundings influence us very strongly when we are kids. Something special, I think, about the GDR, that you would let your kid uh, walk home alone in the darkness in the evening, a nine-year-old kid. Who would do that nowadays? Nobody. Because there was no atmosphere of violence. There was also not much criminality. It felt safe. Why do you think that was? 
Maybe because everybody had a job? So also people that would never have a job now were employed. Yeah, alcoholics or, I don't know, strange people, weird people, uh, people who really cannot work. And uh, they had a job and often they had a job without uh, uh, that there was work, uh, actual work to do. There's thousands of stories of people pushing a, bu pushing a button every day or something uh, and being paid for it. But there was a space for everyone, in a way. And a job means... Enough money to have a flat and uh, enough to eat, although there were no bananas. <laughs> and sometimes also no, no, no apples. Depended. And you don't have this huge responsibility to be responsible for your failure or for your success. And my mother, especially because I think it's also an interesting fact, also described that in the beginning she could not deal with Western German women because they were all housewives. What should I talk with her? She uh, did nothing in her life than ra raising children and clean the kitchen. So, uh, we have nothing in common, nothing. There's still this old narrative, we should be scared of communism, we should be scared of socialism, we should be scared of left-wing ideas. We went through that, no solution. Like, you see it was not working, you know? seems to me that there is not really a kind of remembering and going through the history of both states. In the history books it's always the Western, the BDR is very represented and the GDR is the other country in the East. Well, if you lived in the wrong system, of course it was wrong. So. You better forget that history, right? <laughs> Because we are the winners and we know what's the good system. This must be a feeling that's really hard to understand for people that come from the dominant system. Exactly. Eastern Germany is labeled as a dictatorship, right? Or in Germany, it's like Unrechtsstaat. What do you think about that? This is a very sensitive topic because uh, on one hand I think it's simply true. You are told all the time the most important is, is the state and even more important is the USSR, the mother state. There was a kind of common meaning which was very present and you could be for it or secretly against it. Things are very easy in a way. It's very easy 
where you locate yourself. On the other hand, when I, for example, talk to my father about this, what he always is complaining about that is the the kind of arrogance with which the GDR is judged by Western people. Without knowing much about the country and without knowing anything about the people who lived in that country. I think in a certain amount it was still quite possible to have an own opinion, to live your life according to your ideals and to manage somehow your way through all these uh, difficulties. When they wanted, they could find out everything about you, about your desires, about your little uh, sins maybe, that you one time did something which was not really legal, and they knew it. There were so many persons where they overheard the telephones, where they uh, installed the little microphones uh, in all over the their flats and of course when you watch a person uh, 24-7 then you start to know the person very well but this didn't happen to everybody this happened to suspicious subjects <laughs> your parents have probably a long file right? Um, why would they have a long file? Um, well, my father was a, um, I say, a minister himself. Minister? Like a Protestant minister. He had a file, if I'm not mistaken, of 3,000 pages. He had, I think, three or four constant people who were checking on him and writing at least once a week a report. They were very aware. And for very important meetings, they met in a car, driving, or they went walking outside. So they knew, okay, this is a very confidential talk. No one should hear it. So already in GDR times, they were joking, like, okay, now, hmm, please note for all the Stasi people. <laughs> Nowadays, the perspective is very, how could that happen? The system was so big, it was so big that the whole organization of the Staatssicherheit, you know, it was it was so normal. There were no like private rights because the, the, the goal of fighting against the potential enemy was like higher than any other human right. So I'm still uh, surprised by this fact that German history is full of this. How you can make a thing which is just wrong how you can make it so normal. When the war came down and everything changed, there were a lot of personal dramas because of suddenly, suddenly you found out that your best friend mm. would tell, tell stories about you and your, your personal life. Really in, intimate 
topics, you know, that we share with the, with the Staatssicherheit in, in order to give them uh, a, a weapon to use you, to manipulate you, you know? Because, because warfare. Yeah, of course, of course, of course, like they were like good, very good in that. Did you have any of these personal dramas in your families? A spying thing, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, my father. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't told uh, told me really exactly. We got our dossier. We had a files yeah. and. Yeah, he doesn't. He only said, so. And then he stopped. <laughs> he doesn't tell me. Um, he didn't tell you anything? No, I didn't. No. I only said, like, it was not nice to read it. But, yeah. You don't know what happened, if no. he was spied on. Yeah, he was spied from somebody who, yeah, he loves or he likes. And he, he was disappointed about it. People were frustrated. I mean, it was quite obvious. Everybody could see that the state was broken. The economy really crushed almost. The people were frustrated that so many things weren't available, were not possible, the houses were rotting. More important was even the feeling of not being free, to be trapped in your own country. Walk us through what you remember of the big protests. How did they start? Yeah, they started as a very small movement in the Nikolai church. And this priest started to make good speeches about the circumstances in the state and to talk things out loud. And uh, more and more and more people went to these evening happenings in the church until it suddenly became this bigger movement. Most of the demonstrations or the protests in Leipzig were during the evening, so it was dark. Uh, as I remember it, it was like the feeling of, uh, okay, something important is happening right now and I'm in the middle of it. Between all these mostly grown-up people, who are here to fight for a thing I don't understand completely, but what I can sense is it is important to them. We were together and it felt safe and it felt mm, enthusiastic. And also, I, I don't remember that they were shouting all the time. It was also a lot of walking quietly. Just be there and show presence. October 9th, 1989, where 100,000 people were marching with candles silently around the Ring Street in Leipzig. And around everything was prepared for a civil war. There were camps prepared. China was a big fear. And, and, and a real, I mean... Exactly. 
that massacre. I don't know how realistic it was, but like if it, it was, was an option. It was an option, yeah. To just so, so, shoot these hundred thousand yeah. people in Leipzig. Yeah, of course, and the military was ready. It was really ready. Everything was prepared. The Leipzig um, momentum. We are marching with candles. We are silent. Um, and from there, I think even the, the military was not daring to to intervene. And I think from there, like such a momentum came up, and people really felt empowered. The wish was to change the country, not to reunite with the other half. It was the wish to change that country for a better, but not to, to connect it or enact it to the West. What were people saying in the demonstrations? I mean, I think the most obvious and most well-known is we are the people, we are the folk. What did people mean with that? That they wanted to be part, they wanted to participate in decisions and they wanted to participate in political life, like in democratic countries, in real democratic countries. This four weeks between October 9 and November 9 was such a short period. So much happened. The movement of the people living in GDR said, how can we make a better GDR? How can we do it? And then they developed this format of round tables. People in power came together with people from the civil rights movement and were discussing, were making plans for weeks and in each and every city and village. I think it was like going on all over the GDR. This was the very strong momentum, I think, and the very strong experience of self-empowerment. Hey, we have a voice, we can modify something, we are reshaping the state that is not working anymore. There was like a certain momentum mm -hmm. where this was possible. To break the wall and to unify the country. That's, that's two different things. This is still the responsibility of our generation, I think, to make clear that this is a difference, like 89 and 90. The fall of the wall was not the happy uh, event uh, for me personally in my childhood as it was for so many other people. We want to go because it was so country. clear that my, my parents are not uh, einverstanden, they are not contented with it. Not in that way. What do you think they were afraid of in that moment? I think they were exactly afraid of these things, uh, uh, how it uh, finally turned out. Do you remember the day, the 9th of November? No, the day, no, not the day, but days after this, you know, because um, we were traveling to Berlin. For me it was like, 
Where are we going? What did you see? Colors, much more colors. We came back and not far from our garden, there was this empty place turned to a sort of car selling place yeah. with new cars. There was a small fence and I thought this is the border. This is the border and this is the west because of the cars, yeah, the of cars. the colors. Yeah. We went like two days later. I was in that uh, uh, car called Trabant driving towards the west and people were really like super enthusiastic. We would drive like this. <laughs> but already but only 50 kilometers before before the border. So there was like a 50 kilometer traffic jam. Oh my god. Like through all the villages. Actually we were like apes. They throw literally bananas in our car. No. No. It really was like this and it was not, but it, from now it, it sounds, it, it, it looks like... What? You know? No, no, no. But, but back no. then, back then it was not at all, it was not at all strange or something because it was like such a, it was such a symbol, this banana. Because it was not available, hmm. but it was very easily available in the West. For us it was like heaven, because all these bananas flew, literally, they came like through the car windows from left and right. I saw my father crying for the first time. Why do you think he was crying? He was, uh, I mean, he was really waiting for this moment. On November 9th, my mom, on the one hand, she was feeling finally we have the reunification and all this kind of uh, dream, all this hope of like 50 years or 40 years. 40 years came true. And on the other side, my mom felt like she was dying, something was dying in her. And she felt, now we get all the bullshit from the West. Um, there's just this huge wave of capitalism flowing in and then that's it, basically. And was she right in the end? Well, I guess uh, pretty much, yeah. When everything changed, what would you say was the biggest change? If you can pick only one, I have something so, so nice in German in mind. Please say it in German. Uh, allgegenwärtige Versuchung. My German is not bad, but this... Yeah, it's maybe also a little bit old-fashioned language, but... Um, Let's find out. <laughs> you look for Versuchung, ja? Yeah? Ja. Yeah. Ich suche vor allgegenwärtig. Uh, omnipresent. Omnipresent. Omnipresent and... Nee, Versuch. Nee, das ist falsch. Omnipresent temptation, of course. <laughs> What hit me most as a child was this uh, simple capitalistic 
consumers thing which really hit me like crazy. We always have to keep in mind that I was like 10 years old, so I was a kid. And for example, at the tram station, there was a thing that was very new, a little kiosk or something like that, which was selling um, uh, fries, French fries. So never had have had French fries before, or maybe once or twice in my life. And always when I went to the tram station, uh, that smell of the French fries was so tempting that it was always a struggle not to go there and um, spend all my pocket money <laughs> in French fries, for example. But also, of course, all the, all the colorful things uh, which were suddenly available in the stores. How long did it take? Not long. I, I mean, maybe half a year, a year or so. I don't know. It was really quick. remarkable that it, that that can go so fast so quickly right and it proves that the mechanisms of advertisement function really really good this show was brought to you by resonate productions we make musical journalism about emotional blind spots in society Many thanks to all the musicians from Eastern Germany who donated their songs to help to tell this story. Used to be new. Jamaladin Takuma and Ove Kropinski, Glücklich Eins, Ninive, Herbst in Peking, Kindzeit, Central Quartet, Hans Narva, and When the Hands Point Up, the excitement starts. You can find all of them on facebook.com slash musicaljournalism. In the next episode, Winnie, Henning, Inga and Burkhardt will show us how a new system was implemented in the hearts and minds of the former citizens of the GDR. And we will discover how sudden historic shifts in ideology and power can support every millennial in the changes that lie ahead of us. See you next time.